Good day, my friends, and welcome to another moment, a Black History Moment with Bo. I hope the sun is shining brightly on your life today, and with 2020 vision, you see the good and you see the bad that coexist within your world. I hate the fact that the majority of us only know what whiteness has allowed us to know about ourselves. If we expect the present day school system to give our history to us, we are dreaming. We can't beg other people to restore our history. We have to do it ourselves. So a hundred years later, masses of us learn about Greenwood, Oklahoma. And they made a movie for us about Rosewood, Florida. But believe me, my friends, that is only the very tip of the iceberg. Because the brutality and racism that lies beneath the water is enormous. Those stories are an embarrassment. And whiteness hates being embarrassed by a race of people that they have looked down upon for hundreds of years. So let's slip into darkness and pull out another embarrassing moment to the light. The massacre of black sharecroppers that led the Supreme Court to curb the racial disparities of the justice system. White Arkansans fearful of what would happen if African Americans organized took violent action, but it was the victims who ended up standing trial. The sharecroppers who gathered at a small church in Elaine, Arkansas, in the late hours of September 30th, 1919, knew the risks they were taking. Upset about the unfair low wages, they enlisted the help of a prominent white attorney from Little Rock, Ulysses Bratton, to come to Elaine to press for a fairer share in the profits of their labor. Each season, landowners came around demanding obscene percentages of the profits without ever presenting the sharecroppers' detailed accounting and trapping them in supposed debts. There was very little recourse for African-American tenant farmers against this exploitation. Instead, there was an unwritten law that no African-American could leave until his or her debts were paid off. Organizers hoped that Branton's presence would bring more pressure to bear through the courts. Unaware of the dangers, the atmosphere was tense after racially motivated violence in the area. Some of the farmers were armed with rifles. Around 11 p.m. that night, a group of local white men 
some of whom may have been affiliated with local law enforcement, fired shots into the church. The shots were returned, and in the chaos, one white man was killed. Word spread rapidly about the death. Rumors arose that the sharecroppers, who had formerly joined a union known as the Progressive Farmers and Household Union of America, were leading an organized insurrection against the white residents of Phillips County. Governor Charles Burrow called for 500 soldiers from nearby Camp Pike to, as the Arkansas Democrat reported on October the 2nd, round up the heavenly armed Negroes. The troops were ordered to shoot to kill any Negro who refused to surrender immediately. But they went well beyond that. Banding together with local vigilantes and killing at least 200 African Americans. And the estimates run much higher than that, but there was never a full accounting. The killing was indiscriminate. Men, women, and children, unfortunate enough to be in the vicinity, were slaughtered. Amidst the violence, five whites died. But for those deaths, someone would have to be held accountable. No burnings and no bombings, but it's the same as Black Wall Street. Are you feeling me? The same, same. And this was two years before Greenwood. Of course, the story was spread through whiteness, which may be the encouraging factor of Greenwood. Out of this tragedy, known as the Elaine Massacre, and its subsequent prosecutions, would come a Supreme Court decision that would upend years of court-sanctioned injustices against black Americans and would secure the right of due process for defendants placed in impossible circumstances. Despite its impact, little about the carnage in Elaine was unique during the summer of 1919. It was part of a period of vicious reprisals against African-American veterans returning home from World War I. Many whites believed that these veterans, including Robert Hill, who co-founded PFHUA, posed a threat as they claimed greater recognition for their rights at home. Even though they served in large numbers, Black soldiers realized over the course of the war and in the immediate aftermath that their achievement and their success actually provoked more rage than if they had utterly failed. During the massacre, Arkansasan Leroy Johnston, who had spent nine months recovering in a hospital from his injuries, he suffered in the trenches of France, was pulled from a train shortly after returning home and was shot to death alongside his three brothers. In places like Phillips County, 
where the economy directly depended on the predatory system of sharecropping, white residents were inclined to view the activities of Hill and others as the latest in a series of dangerous agitations. In the days after the bloodshed in Elaine, local media coverage continued to fan the flames daily, reporting sensational stories of an organized plot against whites. A seven-man committee formed to investigate the killings. Their conclusion, all too predictable. The following week, they issued a statement in the Arkansas Democrat declaring the gathering in Elaine a deliberately planned insurrection of the Negroes against the whites, led by the PFHUL, whose founders used ignorance and superstition of a race of children for monetary gains. The paper claimed every individual who joined was under the understanding that ultimately he would be called upon to kill white people. A week later, they would congratulate themselves on the whole episode and their ability to restore order, confidently claiming that not one slain African American was innocent. The real secret of Phillips County's success the newspaper boasted is that the Southerners knows the Negro through several generations of experience. To counter this accepted narrative, Walter White, a member of the NAACP, whose appearance enabled him to blend in with white residents, snuck into Phillips County by posing as a reporter. In subsequent articles, he claimed that careful examination does not reveal the dastardly plot which had been charged and that indeed the PFHUA had no design on an uprising. He pointed out that the disparity in death toll alone belied the accepted version of events. With African Americans making up a significant majority of local residents, it appears that the fatalities would have been directly proportioned if a well-planned murder plot had existed amongst the Negroes. The NAACP also pointed out in their publication, The Crisis, that in the prevailing climate of unchecked lynchings and mob violence against African Americans, none would be fool enough to do so. The black press picked up the story and other papers began to integrate White's counter-narrative into their accounts, galvanizing support for the defendants. But my friends, the courts were another matter altogether. Dozens of African Americans became defendants in hastily convened murder trials that used incriminating testimony coerced through torture, and 12 men were sentenced to death. Jury deliberations lasted just moments. 
The verdicts were a foregone conclusion. It was clear had they not been slated for execution by the court, the mob would have done so even sooner. So let's get this straight. You had 12 black men who were clearly charged with murder in a system that was absolutely corrupt at the time. You had mob influence, you had witness tampering, you had a jury that was all white, you had almost certainly judicial bias, you had the pressure of knowing that if you were a juror in this case, that you would almost certainly not be able to live in that town if you decided anything other than a conviction. And no white residents were tried for any crime. Hello, whiteness. We feel you. And we see you. And we shall call you by your righteous name, Jim Crow. The outcome, at least initially, echoed an unyielding trend demonstrated by many a mob lynching for African-American defendants. Accusation and conviction were interchangeable. Nonetheless, the NAACP launched a series of appeals and challenges that would inch their way through Arkansas state courts and then federal courts for the next three years. A series of hard-fought victories and discouraging setbacks that echoed previous attempts at legal redress for black citizens. The cases of six of the men would be sent for a retrial over a technicality, while the other six defendants, including named plaintiff Frank Moore, had their cases argued before the United States Supreme Court. The NAACP's legal strategy hinged on the claim that the defendant's 14th Amendment right to due process had been violated. In February 1923, by a 6-2 margin, the court agreed, citing the all-white jury, lack of opportunity to testify, confessions under torture, denial of change of venue, and the pressure of the mob, Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes wrote in a majority that if the case is that the whole proceedings is a mass, that counsel, jury, and judge were swept to the fatal end by an irresistible wave of public passion then it was the duty of the Supreme Court to intervene as a guarantor of the petitioner's constitutional rights where the state of Arkansas had failed. If the U.S. Civil Rights Movement is understood as an effort to secure the full social, political, and legal rights of citizenship, then the 1923 marks a significant event. The ruling also carried broad-range implications for all citizens in terms of federal intervention in contested criminal cases. The recognition that the state had violated the procedural 
due process and the federal courts actually weighed in on that was huge. The sharecroppers that had gathered in Elaine had a simple goal, to secure a share in the profits gained from their work. But a series of injustices that night unleashed would, through several years of tenacious effort, end up before the nation's highest court and show that the long-standing tradition of declaring African Americans guilty absent constitutional guarantees would no longer go unchallenged. So there you have it, my friends. Elaine, Arkansas. And I wonder why in 2019, this story was not drugged into the light. This story was not told on television. Was it not similar to Greenwood, Oklahoma? Didn't as many as our people die as died in Greenwood, Oklahoma? Don't they realize that we hunger for the history of our ancestors? Are they afraid that when they look at us, we will recognize the embarrassment in their eyes? And last but not least, do they not realize that the truth and only the truth shall set them free because hiding our history and trying to keep it hidden puts them in enslavement also. Woo! Somebody take my temperature. I'm heating up. Until next time, my dear friends, it's been my honor. <laughs>